We are in Isaiah 50, starting in verse 4 and running through 51.11. And uh, today we're going to be cracking open the third servant song. Um, this, is a, this is a very interesting section because um, usually it's the servant, or the, a lot of the servant songs are, are Isaiah speaking for God about the servant. Um, in this particular servant song, however, we get a little bit of a monologue. It's, it's a, the servant talks about himself, and, um, and there's some very interesting things uh, as he describes in order. We'll, we'll break this down, how this unfolds. Starting in verse 4, he describes his communion with God, and then he describes um, that he lives a life that is marked by suffering. And then he describes that he, will, he, he lives with this complete assurance that he will be vindicated by God. This is, this is basically how, uh, how chapter 50 ends. And there are so many little nuggets in just these seven, eight verses uh, at the end of chapter 50 about discipleship and about what it actually looks like to follow who we believe the servant is and who fulfills that role and what it means to, to follow God you see just this, this pinnacle or this, this stellar example of one who follows God, of one who submits to the plan of the Father. And um, so let's, let's crack this open um, with verse 4. Um, I actually want to read through the rest of chapter 50, and then we'll come back in and break it down. There's something about the, the weight of the whole thing that just, I think we need to read it all at once. So here's verse 4 of chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Now, it's I can't even make it through without stopping. It's important to note that he never really addresses who he's talking to, but you can pick up clues as he's describing his own life, who he wants to hear this, uh, specifically those who are weary. Morning by morning he awakens, and he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And then he turns. That's really him just kind of talking about himself. Then he turns in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. And so again, it goes from his relationship to God to the pain and suffering that he experiences as a result to the trust and the fact that he will be vindicated. And then he turns and he asks this question, who will follow like I follow? And we see that he actually says, and to do that means you actually obey me, the servant. And then it ends with this little 
few lines of judgment to those who would not. This is a this is a, a passage that is beautiful, and then it separates the wheat from the chaff. It's, it's incredible, and then it looks at the righteous and the unrighteous, and it's, it speaks a very heavy word against them. Now, before we go through and kind of break down how all of that plays out, um, um, this weekend, one of our interns... Um, I was in Tulsa for a wedding, but I got a text from one of my interns who says she spends a lot of time doing campus evangelism at Langston University, and very, very difficult campus to, to reach with the gospel, but she's, her dad's the softball coach, so she spends a lot of time with the athletes at Langston, and she asked me this question. She said, what do you say to someone who says that they believe in God, but, they don't, uh, but, but not the Bible? Like they believe in God, but not the Bible. She was kind of, she felt handcuffed. Because, well, believing in God is admirable. She didn't know how this works without the Bible. Um, and this is, this is relevant to our text today because I, I said, ask them to describe who God is. And then ask them where they got that information. I said, I bet you they cannot do it without using the Bible. See, so what the, I, I challenged her. I said, make sure that they even like are describing the same God as you. Because if they say that, well, God is... You know, he has two heads and three eyes, and maybe he's, I don't know, this flying spaghetti monster is the joke Drew Moss likes to make. Maybe he's like the flying spaghetti monster. Well, okay, if that's the God you believe in, then we're not even on the same page. But if you describe God, and he sounds a lot like the God that I follow, how'd you get that information? And I said, challenge them to tell you where they learned these things about God. There's a very limited amount of things you can learn about God from creation. You can learn that he's big and powerful and majestic, but you can't know anything about his relationship to humanity outside of Revelation. So I told her, I said, ask your friend if God is talking to her personally. Like, what's his voice sound like? Um, what's his face look like whenever you have dreams and he reveals all these truths to you? The truth is, like, God's not talking to her like that because he has revealed himself in Scripture. And so I told her, the only way that you can know God in any sort of saving way in any way where you understand his obligations that he has on you and his expectations that he has for you if you can even understand the fact that he is loving i don't think you can look at creation and discern whether or not god is loving actually i think if you looked at creation fallen as it is you would probably have a hard time concluding that god is loving so if she talks about a god who loves her embraces her and has a plan for her and wants her to be in heaven you cannot come to those truths outside of scripture unless you're you know 2,000 years old, and you talked to Jesus, but you didn't. So how do you, I think, and I sent Alyssa back to, the, to, to particularly this passage, and I said, one of the things that the scripture is incredibly valuable um, for is to, to actually find what the character of God looks like, to see what's he like, and therefore what's he expect of me, because after all, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we are made in his image, therefore we have a standard we should be living up to. That image has been tarnished by sin, okay? Well, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We have a new image bearer who's perfect that we're supposed to follow. So you have to go to the scriptures in order to find out what God is like, what he expects, and who he wants us to now pattern ourselves after, and that is clearly Jesus. And I think in this servant song, we see an incredible picture of Jesus and his character and the way that he follows God relentlessly through pain and suffering, through mocking and shame, and yet he trusts him completely to deliver him in all of these things. And we'll see that in the first 11 verses of 51 as well. 
uh, just an unrelenting trust in the Father's plan for the world. Um, all that to say, I, I, just, I was really struck this weekend by Alyssa's question, just how necessary the Scriptures are to do anything. How unbelievable. And now that doesn't mean that God doesn't speak through dreams. I believe He does. I believe He does very much in closed countries, actually, where the Scriptures aren't readily available. Um, I, I know I have a family member who met Jesus in a dream. And so, like, I, I get that. But if you are a young woman at Langston, I don't think you get that. Now, I'm not going to handcuff God, but I, like, I don't think you get to, I love God and I follow God and I believe in God. I just don't like the Bible. I don't think you get to have it that way, sweetheart. What I think you're saying is that you like the parts about the Bible that you like, and then the parts that challenge the way you live, you hate, so you're just going to throw the whole thing out. What we need is for public education to require everyone to take a logic class. That's my, that is what I firmly believe. If we could reform the educational system, it would be logic taught in first grade and every year thereafter. It would get rid of so much silliness. We'd have different presidential candidates, I believe. I just believe it's all a logic problem. Um, I digress. I'll cut that part out of the, out of the recording. Um, okay, so let's look at this, verse 4. This is where the servant is described. This is, this is a, kind of a, a monologue on the stage. You know, lights are dimmed. It's just a spotlight on him. He's just giving a soliloquy. He says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He says, I've been instructed. Note, you'll notice the humility of the servant throughout this. He's, he doesn't even do his tasks. He doesn't achieve his calling out, like in and of himself. He has this external um, source of power. And that is, obviously, God. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And the him who is weary tells us he's speaking to, of course, the exiles in Babylon who are still longing for all these beautiful truths to come to, to fruition. They are, they are begging God. Like, we know, you know, that this is supposed to end at some point. We're getting close to 70 years. When is this going to end? And so he knows, like, the Israelites are tired. They're sick of this. And the servant says, I can... I've, I've, been, I've been instructed such that I can counsel those who are running out of patience, who are hitting their limits as in, in terms of their resolve to follow God through pain and hardship. Morning by morning, he says, he awakens. He awakens my ear to those who are taught. That is both a beautiful line and an indictment against Israel because that's the very thing they refuse to do. He says, Israel would not listen. And those of you who are weary and are frustrated, you, you have what you have honestly. Like this is God's justice on you. You refuse to listen. And, there, and here we have the perfect Israelite, the servant, who says, every single morning I awake and hear the teachings of the Lord. The Lord God, verse 5 says, has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. And after both of those lines, you could write in the margins, unlike Israel. Unlike Israel. He is fulfilling. If you haven't, uh, you guys really need to go into um, 
on our website and go to the Membership Matters stuff under the media section. And last week's class, fast forward 30 minutes, get past my stuff, and get to Drew Moss's presentation of the gospel. It was masterful. He, present, he, he preached Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in 29 minutes. And he masterfully laid out the gospel in such a way that we see that Jesus must fulfill the role of the perfect human and the perfect Israelite in order to achieve God's redemptive purposes. And here we have the servant, which we know Jesus takes on the role of the servant. The servant is fulfilling all the things Israel could not do, not in spite of them, but in their place, as a representative for them, actually. I was not rebellious, and I turned not backward. And then in, ver in verse 6, it switches into, he, t he discusses how such allegiance and how such faithfulness and such righteousness, how it takes place in the context of severe suffering. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, and obviously our minds are running into the trial before the Sanhedrin and the the high priests, and Pilate. And you see all of these things that Jesus takes on himself. He was flogged. His beard was plucked out of his face. He was spit on and disgraced. All these things Jesus took on. Verse 7, But the Lord God helps me. It doesn't even say, like, but I, I, I need to be protected from such abuse. It's, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. That's the, that's the beautiful shame. Uh, that's the scandal of the cross. Is it was utterly shameful by the world's standards and beautiful by God's. The most scandalous way to die and be tortured and brutally beaten and nailed to a tree naked. And the, 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 the children's books are, get it, I think, probably a little wrong. Um, Jesus was crucified probably a foot and a half off the ground. They needed you close to the ground so people could come by and throw food at you and spit on you. Completely naked. Um, the most shameful way to die, as, as um, Paul loves to play on the, on the word, the cross or crucifixion, it was, it was like a cuss word. Like you didn't, you wouldn't say, it's not a word you would say at the dinner table. And you see Jesus taking on... But the Lord God helps me, and therefore I have not been disgraced, the servant says. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Flip to Luke 9. Luke 9. I'm going to start in... I'm going to start in 46. So this is Jesus with his disciples. He's just um, predicted his death again. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child, we just actually preached the Matthew version of this, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. 
for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, that's a very interesting thing to say for someone who's taking on the role of the servant. And way back here in Isaiah 50, it says that someone whose back is flogged, their beard is pulled out, and they've been disgraced and spitting, yet the Lord God helps and therefore it is not actually disgraceful. There's this, this shift in perspective. He who is least among you all is the one who is great, Jesus says. That sounds like something the servant would say. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop for him, for, one, uh, for the one who is not against you is for you. Verse 51, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Literally what it says is he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was, flint is a, is a hard material. He resolved to go, he was not, he was unflinching in his resolve to go to Jerusalem. He was going to fulfill the Father's plan for him, no matter what. No matter how much he is flogged and disgraced and spit on and how much of his beard is ripped out and how much shame he endures, he is going to fulfill his mission. Set his face like flint, way back here in Isaiah 50. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. You better believe Jesus knew this verse clearly um, when he said that in Luke 9. There are so many beautiful things in this particular passage that, see, this is where, next week we'll get into Isaiah 53, the most obvious messianic prophecy. But, when, when someone wants to try to fight against Jesus' divinity and fight against even the unity of the Testaments and that Jesus is an Old Testament idea, when anyone wants to deal with such a silly idea and they want to, okay, well, let's just take your one little prophecy off the table. I just, okay, well, you got time to read a lot? Because trust me, Jesus is all over the place. And to the one who says he isn't, I would ask you to first start by reading and we're going to start talking about my logic classes that I want so bad. Um, because I just see the more you connect the writers of the New Testament to their source material, this is the stuff that Luke knew. This is the stuff that John knew. This is their source material. This is like, we know Mary had a little lamb because everyone just knows those stories. We know all these stories. I don't know any kid within 10 years of my age who doesn't know the entire plot of Lion King. We grew up with these stories. So these are the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, maybe not so much Luke, but he learned them. Definitely Matthew and Mark and John grew up with these stories. These are their source texts. So they're not making a mistake when they describe Jesus setting his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He's taking on the role of the servant. And watch what the servant does now. Now he says, in light of this hardship, in light of the difficulty that I am going through, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? After all, he has the Lord God helping him. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. A challenge. Um... And in many ways, responding to the plight of Israel in Babylon, I'm sure. I mean, we mention this every week, but we just can't get away from it in Isaiah. 
Yahweh looks like a failure at this point in Israel's history. He looks like a weak, fake God because his people couldn't be saved. His temple is in ruins. His capital city is gone. Marduk looks pretty powerful in Babylon. And here you have the servant. Like this, I, I don't know if this would be infuriating to me as an Israelite or if it would be encouraging. I'd hope it would be the, the latter. But they're struggling. And he said, who will contend with me? And I'm over here, Marduk seems to be doing just fine against you. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Now I can say the Babylonian gods look like they're successful against you because I've committed the, the capital crime of an Israelite. I've forgotten history. I'm looking at my current circumstances and thinking that I know the truth now. But watch how, how Isaiah flips it, how the servant calls us to go back and recognize who God is and just say, yeah, your little 70-year stint in exile is nothing compared to what God has done. He has shattered empires for you. If you believe that the Exodus account actually took place, what kind of devastation took place on the Egyptian civilization? If you believe that it was a literal like freedom and removing of an enormous amount of people that are the, the primary labor force for the, for the royal household, and then they are just decimated by ten plagues. What, God is kind of asking the question, who else do you think I'm going to have trouble with? I leveled Egypt. Destroyed every one of their gods. You, you want me to do an eleventh plague and take care of Marduk? It's a little bit of kind of God's posturing and, and even the, the servant here. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Verse 9. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And then he says, those who would declare me guilty, those who would stand up against me, those who are my adversaries, will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In other words, the, the powerful empires of today, gone in a flash. Not impressive to God or to his servant. Egypt wasn't impressive to him. Then it turns and it challenges the people of Israel. Who among you fears Yahweh? And then this is, this is beautiful. And obeys the voice of his servant. Now the servant has to this point been an example, been a very godly and righteous figure, even been a bit of a warrior king. But... Now he is one to be obeyed. Now you see this taking on a different flavor. The servant, I think here, is one of the clearest examples of the servant now starting to take on a divine identity. He now has the authority, or at the very, at the very, very minimum, he is taking on something of the role of the, David, of the Davidic king. He's taking on a, a position of extreme power and authority. Who among you fears the Lord? And it's a little bit of a parallelism. It's kind of saying the same thing. How do you fear the Lord? You obey the voice of His servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So that's, that's the positive side. Now verse 11 is the negative side. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire. So in, in, if, if you are walking in darkness and you have no light, you will rely on God to provide the light. But you can handle it on your own like this. Rather than relying on God, rather than trusting in the name of the Lord, you could kindle a fire and equip yourselves with burning torches. 
Walk by the light of your own fire, he challenges, and by the torches that you have kindled. And he says, if you do, this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So we've had a pretty drastic shift in the servant's personality and his role in these last two verses. In verses 10 and 11, you see he is now one to be obeyed, and he is one who's going to exercise judgment. It's pretty powerful um, attributes the servant is taking on himself. And really, kind of, verses 10 and 11, just that's the Jesus I see in Revelation. Cage fighter Jesus with a sword. Looks like to me when it says, let him who walks in the dark who has no light, you're aligning yourself with someone who's beaten, thrown out, beaten down. That looks like darkness. Mm -hmm. And you're aligning yourself with that rather than the people who still have a little bit of power to carry a torch. Yeah. And, but you're still aligning yourself. I, I think one of the closest analogies that I could ever think of was putting Jesus in an orange jumpsuit with shackles, leading him down to the electric chair with a gallery watching. I think that's the closest we can get in our thinking to what's going on here. Yeah, it, it seems almost fatalistic to follow this servant. And so you're going to follow the guy in the orange jumpsuit. Yeah, you're walking in darkness. Yeah. And, and now this can seem like just blind faith, even misguided stupidity. Um, but then watch how Isaiah says, let me give you a couple of reasons why this is still a safe bet. And then he says, in, starting in chapter 51, he starts to explain why this is a valuable, um, why you should hedge your bets. Why, this, is, this is a little bit like, hey, let me tell you why you should bet on Kansas football. It's like, really? That's a horrible idea. That's the <laughs> quickest way to lose money. That's a little bit, that's the other, the other analogy. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from, rich, from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. They're, 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 they're terrified because they're sitting in a, an empire that is much more powerful than they, and they're far, far, far outnumbered. And Isaiah is saying, God can do a lot with a little. Made a nation out of one man and his infertile wife. Um, he, can, he can redeem this. Again, this is a big passage about uh, get your head up out of your own circumstances. Remember what God has done. That's, this is why I think it's so valuable to read. Um, like I, I believe the most valuable Old Testament books to study as followers of Jesus are Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. Um, but Deuteronomy, the, the refrain is, remember when. Remember what God has done. Don't forget what He's done. And obviously Deuteronomy is written to um, a second generation Israel after all their disobedient parents have died in the desert. And Moses, just before he dies, says, let me, get, let me just remind you of A, the law, and what God has done. Don't forget these things. There is something about memory that just is necessary for discipleship. Um, 
I believe that we actually do we, we do a poor job as a church, and I'm not talking about Sunnybrook, but we're we're guilty too. But probably just the American church does a poor job with church history. A really poor job of church history, and we we do ourselves a, a great disservice because um, a lot of our theological disputes that we have today um, were settled a thousand years or more ago. Um, when you got, if you have a new idea about the Bible or about the Trinity or about the divinity of Christ, just don't say it. That's the safe thing because you're likely a heretic, and there's a number of church councils that will tell you you're wrong. And um, we stumble into these these foolish things because we don't know what's we we don't remember. We just believe that everything that's under the sun, everything that's new is great. Just like let's just and that's like unchristian to think that way. The Christian Christianity is a from the beginnings of time religion. <laughs> it's not a newer and greater and shinier and now we can make it out of resin and we don't have to use wood anymore. You know, when now we have you know, there's so many things that that just come up as a new idea and I'm like yeah that's an old idea and. Lots of bishops called you a heretic 1,500 years ago. Not a new idea. And we don't know history. And the Israelites are struggling to recall their history. Or they know it and they're ignoring it. Um, but just as, just as Moses had to give the instructions again to second-generation Israelites before they headed into the land of Canaan, this is, this is really Isaiah's... These are his words to second-generation Israelites who have grown up in Babylon. The majority of his audience have never been to the temple. The, the concept of a synagogue was actually developed in exile because we needed some kind of place to worship, so we'll throw up a shack and call it a house of worship. Um, these people just don't know their history like they used to. He says, hey, I can do a lot with little. Look at Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. So obviously, even within Israel, the faithful ones aren't that many. Verse 3. For Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like an Eden. Listen to the creation language here. The new creation language. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Verse 3 basically says, God will make things new. And it will result in worship. Fly all the way into Revelation 21 and 22 and see the recreation of everything. And you see this, this picture of Eden unfolding again. Um. We probably won't have time to read it, but if we do, we might. Um, the, the Genesis 1 language used in Revelation 21 and 22 is startling. And so whenever you see something in, in between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22 that's talking about um, a new Eden, I think it's pointing forward to this recreation, this, this new out of nothing. <coughs> Verse 4. Give attention to me, my people. Now he turns to the nations. He's been speaking specifically to Israel. Now he's going to turn and speak on a worldwide, um, on a worldwide scale. 
Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Um, God's, God's laws, His instructions, they themselves produce hope. Just one more reason we need the Scriptures. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands wait for me, or hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Um, the arm of the Lord is seldom used to describe His power. It's actually used to describe, most often, His, His authority to judge. And isn't this interesting that the coastlands, describing those that are far off, basically non-Israel, they, they, they hope for judgment. Judgment isn't always bad. Judgment is just right. So you can be rendered right or you can be rendered wrong. Not guilty or guilty. And there's just something about this passage that says, yeah, the world begs for justice. Which is good news because God's righteousness is drawing near. His salvation is going out. And he says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. There's some Ecclesiastes language. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. Again, to those of you who are frustrated with whatever's going on, all of this is temporary. He says even the heavens will vanish. I don't know if we ever really kind of think through what Revelation's saying, but it's not heavens and new earth. New heavens and new earth. Everything that is not God will be recreated. Isn't that such a fascinating thing to think through? Even the heaven as it is now will be remade, refashioned when God sets everything right. To me, like I don't even know how far I want to go down that road because it just boggles my mind that everything is going to be remade. And so he says, look up to the heavens. And, uh, and the heavens in this passage is really just talking about the skies, the heavenlies, the atmosphere. So everything you can see is temporary. Take another look at it, and then don't get used to it, because it's, it's out of here. He says, contrary to that, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. There is the nail in the coffin. Stop looking at your current situation and hope in what is eternal. Babylon is a joke. Babylon hasn't even been, um, when they're reading this, Babylon might not have even still been in power. They were conquered. Babylon is one of the most powerful, shortest-running empires in, in world history. It says, but my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. And he's talking to the, those who are, have been faithful. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. <coughs> They don't hope in, in temporary things. They hope in the eternal law and instructions and commands of the Lord. Fear not the reproach of man, or Marduk, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. You have in here number of things not least of which is the eternal justice and righteousness and salvation available in God and the 
Gentile inclusion. The, this is for more than just Israel. And aren't we grateful? Um, it's important to note at the end of verse 7, don't be scared of the reproach of man, nor dis- be dismayed at the revilings. He's speaking to those who are faithful, and I think that he's instructing them, you will live a life like that of my servant. You will be faithful, and you will suffer for it. But like my servant, you can hope in the ultimate vindication of all things. So this is why, again, you can't, you can't do this God thing without the Scriptures. Where else will we learn to live like the servant? To live in a relentlessly faithful way, in so, such a sacrificial way that we're willing to suffer and just be fine with it. Doesn't mean we rejoice over suffering, but push through. This is why my, my wife and I, we have lots of conversations about how busy we are and when are we going to get a break? And I tell her, I don't know, you can have a break when I'm dead. But until then, I just said, like, I'm okay with running us into the ground to some extent. I totally get that AI suck at Sabbathing. I'm horrible at it. So I get that I have lots to learn. But in, in, to answer the question, and this is, my wife's not a complainer at all. She's unbelievably strong and bullheaded when she's decided what we're doing is right. But helping her kind of see, yeah, we're always going to be tired for the rest of our lives. Um, we're, like, we're always going to have to put other people first. So like, yeah, we don't, we don't get our nights to just kind of hang out and do Netflix very often. Like, we have to, like, pour ourselves. When are we going to get a break? When will this year end is always the question. Don't know. But I'm not, we're, we are not slowing down January 1. Like, we, we're called to follow the servant, and that means pouring ourselves out for the good of others. And that <laughs> means when it sucks, it sucks. You know, like... Um, we've, uh, have, we actually talked about this in our life group last week. Um, I'm, very, I'm very, very okay, and I know that there are limits, so I'm not going to abuse everyone. But I'm very okay looking at my wife and my kids and saying, I know you're tired, but you need to suck it up. Because like, people need things, and this is what we do. We're servants who model ourselves after the servant, therefore we're going to pour ourselves out for it. Like, I want to die unbelievably spent and worn out and okay I'm completely out of gas now I can go be with the Lord and I think that there's a lot to learn here and and not just here but obviously every everywhere that we see Jesus modeling a life of self-sacrifice I I I have to constantly ask the question and maybe it's just easier for me because I I don't need as much sleep as a lot of people, and so I'm, I'm okay with kind of, and I, I get bored. That's the other part. I get bored if I sit still. Um, so maybe, I, like, I have the advantage of it being easy for me, but I just don't feel like I have any way to, like, not serve the body. Um, and so we're, we're always asking the question, when do we get a break? Or the other question is, do, are we entitled to a break? I also need to be sensitive to my wife, and she's tired. (laughs) But, hey, here's the deal, guys. Before we all pile on Ryan. Before we all pile on Ryan, I will not ask them to do more than I'm unwilling to do. And I don't just stick the kids with her. Like, I I think it's very important that we serve as a family. 
Like, I, I will inconvenience my kids. They will miss your kids' birthday parties because we've got something better to do, and I'm not going to apologize for that ever. I, I don't, now, sometimes they need to go to a birthday party and have some cake. But other times, people need things, and we're going to serve as a family. And if my kids grow up and they hate Jesus because I asked them to live too much like him, that's their fault. Um, I don't know what the balance is. I have no idea. I'm always going to err on the side of doing too much. And I'm going to probably have a heart attack at 42. So that's okay. I'll be officially out of gas, and I'm going to be with the Lord. <laughs> then my wife can rest. Uh, oh, we got, oh, you go first. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus withdrawing off by himself, taking time away, having balance in his life. Are we going to talk about... I think that is very time? important. And I'm not saying that there's no place for that. I'm saying I think our modern tendency is to revel in that. To the at the expense of engaging with people, I think that I think that Middle America loves our own comfort, and I think that we're obsessed with our own leisure time, and I think that we love having everything on our own terms, and so I will probably overcorrect and just inconvenience everybody. Um, so I, I totally agree with that. I don't think I really don't think that's what we struggle with not doing enough of. I think that we struggle with a lot of leisure time and creature comforts. And so, my wife will probably need some counseling soon. <laughs> I probably need a lot of counseling, so. I think most of the retreating that we would do, like an American context, is not retreating to be with God. It's just retreating to get away or to go on a vacation. Yeah. I don't think we're going away to draw near to God, yeah. typically. And I would say that from my own personal you know, it's like, oh, we have to go on a vacation because Americans got to go on a vacation all the time. And I'm not anti-vacation. I did find out this summer I'm anti-Silver Dollar City with, law, with small children. I did find that out. But although when you go at the end of July on the blacktop, it's torture, yes. Yeah. Well, you could even do what I'm talking about with horrible motives, right? right? right. So. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit on the Japan trip with like the tyranny of the good, and there are a lot of good things that will burn up in the end that cause you to pull away from God, mm -hmm. and there are some things that will remain in eternity that you probably need to focus on. Yep. Yeah. I just know looking back on raising children, I just wish I'd taken better care of myself. I yeah. wish I hadn't been tired so much. I mean, that was horrible. I wish I'd done better about taking a nap and being ready mm -hmm. to be a good parent. Because it's hard when you're tired. And, and, and I think that, that that really is important. Um, I think there's a, there's a difference between making yourself sick and making yourself so comfortable you, you're just unaware of what people need. Like, I don't need my comfort to take, you know, precedent over someone else's need. But... Oftentimes the needs are in my own home, and my wife does need a nap, and I need to go. My kids are young enough, they're literally entertained by driving through fields and looking at cows, so I can do that. Um, but I, I hope that we don't, uh, we need to do a better job of not confusing comfort for taking care of oneself. I think we, def I think we tend to fall on one side more than the other. And ask what our heart motive is. 
basically it all boils down to what the first motive is. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to have or why do you want to do Yeah. That was a digression I didn't expect. But <laughs> this is what happens when I'm just reading little scribbles. Okay, let's finish this. He says in verse 9, um, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Again, a uh, 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 phrase regarding judgment. Awake, as in the days of old. Now it's getting into the section where we remember what God has done. You, are, you have no reason to look at your current circumstances and doubt the goodness of God. He says, remember what He's done. As in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? That's a, that's a phrase or a, um, an idiom for Egypt. Was it not you who cut Egypt in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Or some translations will say sea monster. Again, a phrase that they used for Egypt. And then look at all the Exodus allusions here. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Remember the deliverance that God has offered. And then our last verse, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Here is all that hope boiled down in one verse. The ransomed or the saved or the purchased of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now obviously they experienced that in a very real in temporary sense, with the return to Zion, but I think that it means much more. Didn't Marduk also come from the sea? Yes, and so that's probably who the sea monster... There's A lot of these are double references that remember Egypt, and then it's like they would have probably seen like water carvings of Marduk on wherever they were. And so that, oh, okay, if he can do it there, he can do it there. And, and in their mind, anarchy and, and every sort of evil with water... <clears throat> The most terrifying. It's chaos to them. They don't understand. They, this is Revelation 12, verse 17. Yeah, verse 17. So this is at the end of kind of the, I think, the coolest Christmas story where Satan is thrown down to earth in verse 17 of Revelation 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, that would be the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, the church, on those who keep the commandments of God, the faithful ones, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And this is, a, this is intended to terrify the readers. And he stood on the sand of the sea, kind of ready to devour anyone who would allow him. That's a picture of Satan in Revelation 12. But they would... They, when you needed to paint a terrifying picture, it was a sea monster. So a beast standing on the edge of the sea is terrifying to ancient um, Revelation. It would have been ancient Asia Minorans. I don't know what you call them. Um, people of the seven churches. But same thing for Israel. They would have looked at this um, and recognized that he, God is triumphant even over those things. Um, there is, a, there is a, a call here from Isaiah to wake up to these things. Remember these things. He's got like this, this holy angst. He's impatient for not only the people to turn back and remember these things, but he's impatient for these things actually to take place. He's impatient for God to ransom his people and send them home. Um. And I just kind of wrote in the margin here, 
Do we have Isaiah's holy impatience? Do I long for the kingdom to come in fullness the way he does? Do, do I look for ways to love his scriptures, to be taught as the servant is taught, to suffer as the servant suffers, and then to trust in the vindication of all things and the hope of all things as the servant hopes? And will I um, live, back in verse 7, as one who knows righteousness, as one who has God's law in my heart, and not fear man's reproach, and not be dismayed when the church is pushed back? Will I look at things that attack the people of God and attack the cause of Christ as if they're temporary inconveniences, something a moth will chew to pieces? Do I trust that God's righteousness is so steadfast that it is eternal, and that His salvation is rock solid and therefore I can withstand anything? What are some of the um, what are some of the modern versions of this that we struggle with? What are what are some of the um, contemporary issues that pull our eyes off of the goodness of God? That pull us off of trusting Him for what He's already done, and therefore I can believe what He will do. What are some of the things of this world that, like, help me forget how powerful God is and start making me question things. Elections. Elections. Busyness. Busyness. Hey, <clears throat> hush. Yeah. I think that you know the text would have to make you think about whatever it is that you're going through that's hardship, suffering, pain, aggravation, frustration. I mean, it just seemed to me that one of the natural answers from the text is when you're going through, when you're wandering in darkness, when you're wandering in darkness, remember the story. Yeah. And it doesn't even promise light. <laughs> you know? How, um, how often have we have we sold a Remember bill of goods? Which you were in. Remember Abraham. And be okay with the difficult circumstances of now, like now in light of Abraham. You know, I wonder how many times have I not asked the question? Probably a hundred percent of times. Have I been going through something that's really frustrating me, and I just seldom remember? What about like years and 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 decades of believing that God will give me a kid? And then he finally does. And you have to think that while his wife is over here giggling, Abraham is just like, I was such an idiot to doubt you. Love Ishmael, he's my son, but I was such an idiot to doubt you. I've never had to wait that long for anything. I haven't even lived that long. <coughs> you know, 
it is really easy to get consumed and become real myopic and only see our own problems and only see our own Babylon. And so history is valuable. Um, the community is valuable. If you think you've got the worst set of problems on the planet, just start talking to the people that are sitting next to you. You don't. Um, and even if you've got to go a couple of pews over, believe me, you still don't. And, and, and this just brings me back to the value of Christian history, the church history. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know, in light of the Donald and the Hillary, that this is just the worst time. We're heading into the worst season for the church. I'm just like, doubt it, bud. Like, it's not going to be good. I'm not saying that. But, like, just don't, don't speak so flippantly without like consulting what the church has actually gone through at certain points in history and came out of brilliantly. What's the only institution that is still standing from 0 A.D., 30? Well, actually, I'll go to from like 50 A.D. The church is solidified with a leadership in Jerusalem. Any other institutions in the world still standing? We've got a pretty stinking good track record of making it through bad emperors and presidents and whatever. And we forget that. Like, I just think, that okay, Hillary's going to remove our tax-exempt status and we're going to have to shut the doors. No, we won't. We'll be fine. Just make Eric give more money. We'll be fine. <laughs> it's easy to get distracted by, um, like, the legislating of values and morals. And they go, oh, no. I mean, like, when you think about very polarizing or... But, you know, abortion, drugs, marriage, you know, yeah. uh, you know, gay marriage, things like that. People worry about, oh, no, those, we're losing legislation on those. Or, and it's like, that's the church being, you know, I just feel like he'll never uh, write laws to protect values and morals. Because yeah. That's not, that's not their job. It's the church's job to stand up and um, walk with people through those seasons or to show them why, you know, why the scripture is important and the promises that God offers them. Yeah. And so I think we worry like, oh, we have to have this judge because he's going to, and it's like, no, that's not there. I mean, it's so important that it is. Yeah. But if it wasn't, you know, that's, that's the church's role and that's why they stood and, and that's their place. And so, yeah, I think in the election, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's easy to go, but I have to. And it's like, yeah, and, and I don't, and, and what you're not suggesting is that we completely walk away from responsibility either, right? No. I mean, I, I really don't think you can legislate anything but morals. I just think they have a different set of morals. Um, and, and I'm okay with... I, I, I obviously have concerns about, say, abortion law. I really would love... Like, I have a view on that. But I also, I also just realized that like, the fact that murder is wrong usually doesn't stop the people that want to murder people. Right. right? So the law is, isn't like, all that powerful. It just brings consequences that obviously they're willing to face. Or they'll ignore. Um, I think we can be on the wrong side. I think people with great intentions will look back and, you know, on the other side and go, I was, I was totally on the wrong side of that. But I don't think it, I also don't think if it's ruled one way in our society that it takes away the church's ability to be the, to be the light and to, yeah. and to speak truth and life into it. It gives us a better platform to, to speak into that. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about um, in our Sunnybrook 101 class to, to new people is uh, we, we kind of go through this big exercise where we write all the functions of the church, everything the church is called to do, and it's, it ends up being 50, 60 things on a whiteboard. And then we, 
we just kind of say, the only, we can only do three or four of these on a Sunday morning. We can teach, we can preach, we can worship, we can baptize, and we can do communion. And everything else we kind of have to do every other time of the week. And one of the things that always comes up is the church is to act as a conscience to the community. And so I don't know of an abortion law that has ever legislated love of a mother for a child, but I do know of a Holy Spirit that can do that. Like laws don't teach people to do anything. They just tell them what's going to happen when they do. They don't teach people to love. And so, like, I'm, I'm hear me, I, I really would love additional protection that takes away abilities to do things. But I, I just trust the Spirit with a lot of this stuff. And so, yeah. When the church loses power is when it actually becomes the most healthy. Throughout history, when the church rises to power at the governmental level, it is usually not long before the church becomes sick and power-hungry. And faithfulness is now allegiance to the state, not to Jesus. When the church is being kicked to the curb and just getting its lunch handed to it, it is so faithful and powerful and vibrant, and, it, and the Spirit testifies in amazing ways through our ability to act like the servant and withstand opposition. So, like on a very practical level, would I love a godly man in office or a godly woman in office? I really don't care. Sure. Don't know if I need one. Truly don't know how often we've actually had one. I think that the truth is social media has exposed what has probably been the case for a long time. If, imagine if Bill Clinton had a Twitter account, how bad that would have been. Abe Lincoln wasn't as godly as people think. So many of the early presidents weren't Christians at all. They were deists, <coughs> French pagans. Um, there's, there's just so much of it that I think is getting exposed by modern information. And I'm okay with the church taking a little bit of a hit if it produces faithfulness in us. Church attendance, like all the stats, Barna did a study again, and the church is declining in attendance. And I'm just like, but is it declining in faithfulness, or are those that weren't faithful just leaving because it's uncomfortable now? The cleansing of the bride. Yeah. She's becoming more pure. Threshing the wheat, the chaff is blowing away, and I'm okay with that. I really am. And so these are, this is obviously a very monumental area where some of what Isaiah is dealing with here comes, comes to light now. I'm so ready for this election to be over and for us to just say, you know, we were all wrong. You know, I've never been a guy that liked to make fun of the U.S., but I have to believe that the rest of the world is saying, you guys are dumb. You have done it now. You have done it now. So. Yeah. Well, and and I'm I hope that for most of us it's not a like I've got to, I like it's a I've got to give control over. I'm going to kind of do it kicking and screaming, dragging my feet. Cuz you know, if I, if I sit down with Natalie, who's a really honest person, what would things look like if you were in complete control? I think we all like overestimate our goodness. 
She'd be like, it would be a train wreck. And Kyle's over here, yes, it would. Yes, it would. There's a trust. Like, I don't want to be in control. There's a sarcastic comment about Christian and politics. If you can't convert them, control them. Yeah. (laughs) I've always thought that's kind of humorous because that's what we try to do. You can't convert them, so let's just try to control them. We'll manipulate them with law. That's the moral majority. It wanted to make a Christian nation, didn't care if they were followers or not, just wanted it to look pretty Christian and be kind of clean. And I am, I am not sad that it's dying. I am not sad. I think it'll be good for the church. So I think the, the truth of the matter is that people that I've been around that were extremely faithful, extremely godly people, male or female, they always convicted me. Their, their life convicted them. They didn't have to say anything. They just yeah. get around them. They, they got me. Yeah. <laughs> if you want, if you want to become more holy, just hang out with some holy people. It's pretty contagious. It's illuminating, convicting, and contagious. And so that's why you know. With college students a lot, I have the question of, like, how missional should I be, you know? Should I be at this or that party? I'm just like, whoever you spend the most time with, you'll start looking like. Just do with that information what you will. But I would kind of make home the church and make the world the world. Doesn't mean you don't go out there. But if you just set up camp out there, eventually you're not going to look like us anymore. So... I'm, I have no guilt over, whatsoever over the fact that my closest friends are godly, godly men. So, let me pray, and then you guys can go hear Scott Irwin bring the word. God, thank you for another Sunday, another week, and thank you as always for your revealed truth. I pray that we would never take that for granted, that we have um, such a powerful witness to who you are, what you've done, and what you expect of us, that by your providential care you have given us many, many years later. And it has only proven itself trustworthy over the years. God, I pray that we would remember that and that we would live as though that's true. Always bring us back to your character so that we can know who you are and worship you well and bring us back to the character of Jesus so that we can know more about who you are and how we should live. And then bring us back to the character of your spirit so that we can know where the power to actually live like that comes from. Thank you for all of these things, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.